0: Hello, and welcome to episode 53 of Daisy Books, news and views about Daisy literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Butt. Thank you for tuning in. In today's Daisy Craft Chat, we have S.J. Sindhu discussing their new novel, Blue-Skinned Gods. In this conversation, we talked about the use of Hindu mythology in contemporary fiction, the loss of religion, and more. S.J. Sindhu is a Tamil diaspora author of two literary novels, two hybrid chapbooks, and a forthcoming graphic novel. The first novel, uh, Marriage of a Thousand Lies, won the publishing triangle Edmund White Award, and was a Stonewall Honour book and a finalist for a Lambda Literary Award. Sindhu's second novel, Blue-Skinned Gods, is out this month, November 2021, and a graphic novel, Shakti, is forthcoming. Sindhu's hybrid fiction and non-fiction chapbook, I once met you, but you were dead. Won the Turnbuckle Chapbook Contest, and a hybrid nonfiction and poetry chapbook, *Dominant Genes*, won the Black River Chapbook Competition, and will be published in February two thousand and twenty-two. Sindhu teaches at the University of Toronto in Scarborough, traveling from the ashrams of India to the underground rock scene of New York City, Blue-Skinned Gods explores ethnic, gender, and sexual identities and examines the need for belief in a fractured world. In Tamil Nadu, India, a boy is born with blue skin. His father sets up an ashram, and the family makes a living off of the pilgrims who come to seek the child's blessing and miracles, believing uh, young Kalki to be the 10th human incarnation of the Hindu god Vishnu. Kalki is confronted with three trials in his 10th year, tests of his power that will prove his divine status, and his father tells him they will spread his fame worldwide. Over the next decade, as the story of his family unravels, his relationships with everyone, his father, cousin, his cancer-stricken aunt, and the young woman he imagines he will marry, threaten to fall apart. What interested me about this novel is that it's not about religion in the usual sense, but about the loss of religion and what that might mean for a person in their world. And I appreciated Sindhu discussing here how they approached the Hindu mythology aspects of the story as objects of study and cultural artefacts. Myths have always been used universally in all cultures and since ancient times to explain patterns in our lives. And we need patterns to help us make sense and order from confusion and chaos. But oftentimes, we see Desi writers leveraging Hindu mythology in contemporary fiction to point to certain life patterns for their characters with, well, mixed results. And that's not what Sindhu has done with this novel, which is, for me, refreshing. Enjoy this chat. Here's Sindhu now. Welcome Sindhu. Uh, thank you for coming on The Craft Chat to talk about your new book, the new novel, Blue Skinned Gods.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Oh,
0: no, this is great. I mean, I, I remember when your first book came out, I had just started querying for my own story collection. So I was paying a lot of attention to basically <laughs> books by other writers of South Asian origin and it did really well. And, you know, so, um, I was excited when this one was announced. Um, now, as I, I mentioned, in my introduction, uh, this novel is partly set in India and partly set in the U.S. And it, it has, aspects of or, or it borrows from Hindu mythology, though it is not mythology-based fiction as we know, you know, the traditional kind. And, you know, I was thinking about that because when I look at mythology-based fiction, generally coming out of India in particular, but also, you know, there's a lot of YA works in the U.S. that kind of borrow from Hindu mythology, and they're mostly retellings, right, in in right you know, in different genres. Now you've approached this very differently, which I like, it's not a retelling. (laughs) It's more about, you've taken an ancient Hindu myth apart in a way to examine the underlying beliefs through the construct of this contemporary story. So my question, my first question is, what drew you to this premise? What was it that made you decide, I'm gonna set a whole novel around it, I'm gonna commit to, you know, a few years of my life writing this novel
1: well I um so I mean I've been you know uh atheist I guess for a for a long time since I was a teenager but um and and it's always been a source of contention in my family because my family is fairly religious um and they got even more so as I grew older um but you know, it was always the queerness that came first, that was the biggest issue, um, which I sort of worked through in my first book. And uh, after that, I, I feel I felt like I had sort of laid it to rest and I had, you know, uh, worked through a lot of my issues with my family's, um, I guess, disavowal of my queerness and and sort of ignoring of, of that part of my identity. And then, the religious aspect just sort of started to come to the forefront because uh, while, when I was young, you know, I would go and, and, you know, pray with my family. I would go to temple. I just didn't really make a big fuss out of being atheist, but as I grew older, these sort of religious functions started to grate on me a little bit and I didn't, I didn't really want to participate in the way that my family wanted me to. And so I, uh, I started thinking a lot about that. I I started researching more about Hinduism. Um, I already knew like quite a bit, but I but I made it a uh, a focus of my study for a while during my PhD. Um, I I you know I was doing a PhD in English, and my minor was critical theory, and uh, a lot of critical theory actually borrows from. Um, Hindu texts. And so I, I I wanted to read the original text and in translation instead of seeing it filtered through this white lens um, through like critical theorists such as Schopenhauer. Um, so I, I started doing that. And I was also uh, at the same time, I watched this documentary by Vikram Gandhi called uh, Kumare, where he basically pretends to be a Hindu guru. Uh, and like, uh, dupes all like a bunch of Americans into believing that he is this guru who's like divinely ordained and and he uh, at the end of the documentary he comes out to them as a fraud and and uh, and and I just thought this whole uh, premise was really fascinating this this like uh, that that the this whole thing with gurus and swamis that I had always been aware of in South Asian culture was starting to really take hold in American culture. I guess since the 60s and 70s, it's been a thing in uh, Western culture, but it was really starting to come to the forefront a little bit. Um, I think with social media, I saw a lot of my friends sort of being drawn into these Hindu, like almost cults. And it was really fascinating to me. And uh, that's that's sort of how this started um, very early on.
0: Yeah, you know, that you mentioned Kumari, I, I didn't know that was an influence, but I, I've seen that uh, documentary too, so I, I totally get it. Um, and I always love these genesis stories because they're generally never whatever I think might be the genesis of a novel, you know, and I ask an author <laughs> what was the genesis, so I'm, I, I'm always fascinated and um, yeah, that that's a great um, story. You know, you mentioned about how your first book, you know, it, it addressed and obviously, really explores queerness. And then this one is going into uh, religion, but it's also exploring queerness. And I want to get to that in a Mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, But what I want want to continue on this one more question related to the the mythology is, you know, this particular myth um, that that you um, make, the premise of the novel is about Kalki as the final avatar of the Hindu god, Vishnu. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, I think for those who do know a bit about Hindu mythology, they're, they're familiar with that. And I'm sure like, you know, now that you've mentioned that, you know, your family was pretty, is I should say, pretty religious, mm-hmm. you probably heard or read about it as a child. And and then mm-hmm. you mentioned, you know, of course, that you're an atheist now. So my question is, as an adult reader and writer, how do you see your relationship now with Hindu mythology, do you approach it as as art, as entertainment, uh, a sociocultural artifact? Obviously, you've studied it. I didn't know that, so you know you've obviously studied it as well. So it's it's an object of of knowledge as well to some extent. But how do you you know what's your I guess relationship with Hindu mythology as a writer, as a reader?
1: As a child, I was fascinated. You know, I, I loved it. Um, I learned as much about it as I could. I loved. Uh, I I think I was, you know, I I immigrated when I was seven, I was cut off from a lot of um, my source culture, my heritage, and so this was part of my trying to keep that culture alive for myself. Was to uh, learn as much as I could about Hindu mythology, and so even as an adult, I, I was still fascinated with it. I think for me, it's it's not it, it, like you said; it's an object of study. It's an it's a cultural artifact, but at the same time, it's something that I that is problematic to me, and I really wrestle with because for me, it's really hard to um, you know as you study it, it's really hard to figure out what these myths looked like pre-colonization and how they've changed through colonial times because i feel like they've gotten you know my gut feeling is that they've gotten a lot more conservative and a lot more patriarchal than they used to be Um, and i and i really wonder what the indigenous version of these same myths are and then of course you know india and south asia have been host to numerous invasions and foreign rule, and I'm just like, you know, there's just so many layers to unpack there that I I find it fascinating as a a set of texts. Um, But at the same time, you know, as uh, Hindutva and fundamental Hinduism has started to rise back in India and in diaspora communities, my relationship with hinduism has really shifted you know i I, at first i when i was an atheist i was like okay was when i was a new atheist i was like okay this is like these are uh things i can study without really believing in and they're harmless for the most part um but then you know i really got into critical caste studies and uh anti-caste uh writings and i just I don't know. At this point, um, as I was writing the book, this was happening. So uh, part of writing the book was my exploration of whether or not, you know, uh, these Hindu myths can be salvaged. Like, can you separate Hinduism from caste? Um, not just codified class the way, uh, caste the way that we, that the way that the British codified it, but uh, even pre-colonial caste uh what does that look like and can you separate it from from the religion itself so uh it's it's still unclear to me and i'm still working through it but part of my fascination with these hindu myths is an exploration of caste as well
0: yeah no i i hear you about how um a lot of our mythologies I mean they've always evolved even in pre-colonial times you know because Mm -hmm. of the oral traditions right and even when they were written down they were only available to certain groups within society so they've always evolved but yeah I I hear you on how conservative is how they've become more conservative I guess um, in in recent times also Mm -hmm. in, in terms of how they're literally interpreted uh, more so, it, 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 it's more incongruous now because we're in 2021 and you don't expect to hear those literal interpretations, right? Right. Um, yeah, so, um, you know, and, and talking about uh, religion and, and faith and belief systems, the main character, Kalki, in, in this novel He's raised, I'm going to try not to get not to give too much away because I mean, I think there are some plot points we shouldn't talk about, but <laughs> right. um, you know, he's raised to believe he's a God and he learns over time um, conflicting truths about his life and the world around him. Uh, part of this comes from all the different people who come to the ashram where he's growing up and part of it is through his own reading and observing. And now listening to you about how you've sort of Studied and, and grappled with aspects of Hinduism, I can kind of see where that a lot of that might have come from. But what was interesting as I was reading was that Kalki's intellectual awakening is a rather painful process. I mean, in many ways, right? It's not like just not just emotionally painful. There are other other things happening. Could you talk a bit about maybe how you approached showing this? awakening for him what was some how what was the key thing you wanted to make sure came across about this character's intellectual awakening um, about his religion and his identity um, both while he was at the ashram and then later obviously when he arrives in New York City I
1: really wanted to explore what it Meant to be so isolated and so sheltered, um, because in a lot of ways, I think me and a lot of the South Asian kids I knew growing up were very, very sheltered. We, the, you know, uh, our parents monitored or or had thoughts about the um, the kind of like TV programming we were allowed to watch and, and the kind of um, friends we were allowed to uh, associate with and et cetera, et cetera, the kinds of things we were allowed to do at school. Like I wasn't allowed to go to school dances. I um, couldn't watch anything with with square, swear words or nudity. Um, you know, anything that wasn't animated was automatically suspect. And so it, I, I I grew up in this uh, bubble and and so did a lot of my... Um, friends who were South Asian and I just uh, and so I I was sort of I guess gesturing to our own coming of age our own intellectual awakenings and most of that for me was through books because my parents weren't monitoring the books that I was reading Um, that was the only way I could really contend with uh, more adult material more complicated material um and and sort of and learn more about the world. And so I, I think that's mimicked in Kalki's Awakening, which is also through books. You know, his first contact with the outside world is through through books. Um, so that means a lot to me. And uh I I was uh I think for me what what I wanted to get across most is that is the um, harm that it can really do to a psyche to be that sheltered? Uh, because a lot of South Asian parents, I think, still sometimes believe that for, in order to protect our children, we need to sort uh, of shelter them from from uh, knowledge they're not ready to have yet. Uh, but I'm a full believer that children are able to understand complex issues and able to grasp um, things that aren't just about sunshine and rainbows and that they should. Um, and I think, it's, it, I think it's actually really good for children to do that. Uh, so that's part of that. I put a lot of that into Calhoun's development as well. That, that I, I think that part of his issue with not being able to grasp the full world in New York City when he is 22 is because of his upbringing and his shelteredness.
0: Yeah, I, th- I, I do think, and, the, and that's the reason I asked the question. I think you, you approached that. It, I could tell you had approached that intellectual awakening very carefully. Um, and and I, I agree with you. I think in, in real life, as well as in fiction, we need to be able to see how children are definitely more intelligent than often given credit. And, and I think a lot of writers I know I mean, most of us were rather precocious when we were young, anyways, right? So, I mean, we, we were reading stuff before our time or before we were supposed to or whatever. So, yeah, I think that that part was definitely very um, relatable as far as Kelsey being able to read and, and understanding what, you know, how different his world was from from the reading. Mm-hmm. Um, now you you know, talk, talking about the the him coming to New York in, at at 22 your first novel also played a little bit, you know, with the whole East versus West dichotomy, as does this book, because it's set both in India and the US. And, you know, this is a theme that many of us um, diasporic writers would revisit, you know, for different reasons. Everybody has their different reasons for why we kind of approach this whole East versus West thing because of how it is, as you've rightly pointed out, um, the 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 dilemmas that we deal with on a day-to-day basis in living in the West. Um, But what, you know, you and you mentioned some of your reasons, you know, about the the fact that as you were growing up in a a very religious um, upbringing, um, it became important for you to try to explore this more. But what, in terms of, if you look at, if I just look at just this novel, or, or maybe, you know, overall your fiction, what are maybe one or two questions, that you're always seeking to um, explore or kind of pull apart about this particular theme of the East versus West dichotomy, you know, through yeah, through your fiction. What would you say?
1: I'd say a big question for me is where we find liberation uh, and how liberation comes to us. And by liberation, I mean liberation from. The expectations that are put onto us and the sort of oppression that we we experience every day, and I think the answer, you know, uh, is is both places. You know, there are certain kinds of liberation to be found in our heritage and the East, uh, and there are certain kinds of liberation to be found in Western culture, um, and and a lot of people, uh, <laughs> especially like younger. South Asian readers have taken issue with um, the, the idea that there that queerness and the sort of liberated uh, sort of hedonistic living cannot be found in uh, our our heritage, um, and I think it's it's a function of when we grew up, right? Like I grew up in the nineties mostly and diaspora cultures, uh, diaspora South Asian culture in the nineties was not very enlightened, um, was not liberatory. And it was really hard to find any sort of uh, permission to, to be ourselves, to be creative, to be artists. Um, within that culture. And and so I'm I'm representing a very particular experience of growing up South Asia and that I don't think is quite true today. Um, I see a lot of my cousins, uh, a lot of them do face that same kind, uh, younger cousins who are growing up now, who are teenagers right now. Uh, a lot of them are facing those kinds of struggles but a lot of them aren't and and they are growing up in a very different kind of diaspora culture uh, than i did um, so i think the that question the answer to it really shifts over time um, the other question i am interested in really exploring is where do you find community uh, i think community is really important to everyone but uh, almost all of my protagonists are somehow outcasts they are uh the odd one out and for them a lot of their journey is about finding community and finding belonging
0: yeah no i i hear you about i mean on both of those you're right community where, where do you belong because because we have these sort of hyphenated identities and Um, I think a lot of us diasporic writers are always exploring that, um, but in different ways, in our own ways. Um, And and I I wanna come back to, you know, what we just, what we talked about a little earlier, which is with your first novel, you know, you explored, uh, which is The Marriage of a Thousand Eyes, you explored identities, queerness, sexuality. And of course, those are themes that are also here in this novel. And what I remember, as I said at the outset, I, I kind of was following some of the new books that were coming out in 2017 mm-hmm. um, because I was also looking to send my book out in the world. And I remember reading in places where you were being asked how your how that book, that first novel, was being received, um, you know, just in, in, in general within the South Asian community, but also by readers and and because, you know, the, the themes you were writing about, we didn't have that many books. I mean, you could count them on on both hands, really, probably. <laughs> there was, you know, Sham Salvadurai, there was um, Tanayas, um, I think Marianne Mohanraj. Mm-hmm. But, but since then, I think we've seen, I, I wouldn't say we've seen a deluge, but we've seen a few more. Like this year, we've had uh, Radiant Fugitives by Nawaz Zemeth. Uh, we're getting an essay collection from Hassan Tika which is uh, also exploring the essays. You know, she was my editor for my book and um, I'm, I'm looking forward to her essay collection. that's going to be exploring queerness. And, and so do you, what are you seeing? Okay, now that, that, you know, the time that has passed since your first novel and now the second novel, how are you seeing the landscape for how books uh, or our fiction is exploring identities, queerness, sexuality, and and how are they being received, more importantly? I know it's a bit early for this book, but, you know, maybe (laughs) if you could speak to that.
1: Yeah, Um, I think, you know, you're right that Marriage of a Thousand Lies came out at a time when it, there weren't many uh, books out there that were, that were doing this, that were South Asian and queer, and exploring those issues. Um, And I, I really think, it would have had a little bit better of a reception if it had come out like now, you know? Um, Because I do think the landscape has shifted. I think there's two ways in which it has shifted. I think diaspora communities, South Asian communities in particular, um, have become more open to uh, queerness in general and stories of queerness in particular. Um, and I think part of that is because they are like there's this thing that happens when you're an immigrant where, you know, the home culture sort of hits pause uh, at the time that you leave, and you don't really realize that it's changing and it's evolving uh, as you know that that and that it's not the same as what you remember. Uh, and and I think that there's a better, uh, realization now in diaspora communities, at least um, among my own family and, and other diaspora families that I'm close to, that queerness has shifted from being a taboo to being you know, something that is existing. Uh, and and people have heard of uh, you know their friends' kids coming out and you know there, there's just there's whispers and there's there's talk and it's not all bad talk. Um, and so I think like diaspora attitudes toward queerness are shifting because uh, queer activism is growing back home in India and in Sri Lanka in in Nepal in Bangladesh in Pakistan there are there is more and more queer activism happening and so it's really I think it's 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 informing the diaspora attitudes toward queerness and um, you know diaspora. Cultures are usually in countries where queerness is being more and more accepted. So there's yeah, no, that. I
0: hear you. Yeah. yeah I
1: Because
0: I, yeah. I think I mean you know I um, I've been I I left India when I was eighteen or nineteen and then I went back in my mid forties, and you know uh, other than the odd one week trip I hadn't actually lived there. And in mm-hmm. twenty fourteen. I moved back for a while. And let me tell you, even though I was in a second tier, what they call a second tier city, because it wasn't Bombay <laughs> or Delhi or right. Chennai, and it was a second tier city, Ahmedabad in Gujarat, which is conservative, it's, it's um, Modi country there. But you would be amazed when you, know, you mentioned queer activism and mm-hmm. yeah, there were, there were college and university students organizing these get togethers you know, uh, and just, you know, bringing people together, helping them learn how to speak about it with their families. And I just, and these were people, I got to tell you, something, these were people who I could be their mother's age. I was just so damn proud. I was just, I was, you know, I would, because, you know, you I would see it all happening online where they'd be mm-hmm. sending out stuff like oh we're getting together at such and such place such and such coffee place and you know if you're queer or identify as queer and you don't know how to talk to your family about it come and join us and have some coffee on us and I just thought it was amazing you know um I I hadn't expected it because I grew up in a very different India in the Mm 70s and 80s you know I'm older so yeah
1: yeah yeah it's it's it really is amazing and and you know there's been several uh queer like very high profile queer marriages that have happened within South Asian diaspora communities. And it's 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 changing, the conversation yeah. is changing and that's really promising. I think yeah. the other thing that happened uh, between when marriage, came, marriage of a Thousand Lies came out and now is that the publishing industry has realized and this is not just the publishing industry, it's also Hollywood, um, they've both realized that if you have multiple marginalized identities in one piece of work, it doesn't mean that you're going to split your audience or that you're going to make your audience smaller. It actually means you're going to multiply your audience into a bigger one, uh, which, you know, like when, when I was sending out my book, most of the rejections I got from editors said basically like this, it, this is a book for queer South Asians and that is too small an audience. Uh, and we don't really know how to market it to everybody else. And I'm I'm glad that SoHo took a chance on it. Um, I'm so grateful because, you know, since that time, it's been fairly obvious in in tracking, you know, bestsellers and and, uh, blockbuster movies that audiences will go just because it has that one marker of identity. And so if you have a South Asian queer book, like South Asians will read it and queer people will read it and maybe the general audience might read it too so like it actually makes your audience bigger um which I think yeah I think like uh big studios and big publishing conglomerates are just getting around to that idea they're just realizing it and so we're seeing a lot more uh queer queer South Asian books because of that
0: yeah that well that I'm I'm glad to hear that because that would really have ticked me off what you just said which is people thinking oh well you know only queer South Asians will be interested well I'm South Asian I'm interested I'm not queer but I am interested in you know widening Mm -hmm. my my reading and scope of understanding so I'm sure there are non-South Asians too like that so Mm -hmm. yeah I mean my gosh that makes me that would make me even (laughs) more determined like okay we're going to make this book a bestseller you know just wait and see (laughs) Oh my goodness. All right. Well, that's interesting. So talking about that, the readers, you know, I, I, there's a question I've been thinking a lot about recently, ever since I read uh, Matthew Solace's, um Craft in the Real World. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've had a chance to read that, but I did. You, you did. Okay. So one yeah. of the things he talks about is, you know, of course, when we first start writing anything, we're our first reader. We're, we're telling, the, you know, your first drafts are really just you telling yourself, the story or discovering the story. But at some point, we have to have a clear reader in mind. And, and the reason I've been thinking a lot about this as a diasporic writer and, and in my conversations with other writers in the community is, I think the answer, there is no one answer for who you're writing for when you are a diasporic writer and, you know, you, you kind of got your you know one foot in one world and another and another and and so my question to you is but but again you know at some point in the writing process and editing process we do start to think about the reader or a group of readers so who Mm -hmm. was the reader that you had in
1: mind perhaps you know with this particular novel i think with this um with marriage it was very specific i wanted i like, I wanted a queer South Asian audience because that's who I was writing for. I wanted everybody else to read it too. But, you know, I wanted to offer queer South Asians who have never seen themselves in, like, depicted as the protagonist of a work, um, especially queer, queer women. Uh, I wanted them to see that it was possible to, to see themselves in a work. And so it was very, very specific with marriage. With this, um, with blue Skin gods, it, it was much more, it was much broader. It was really directed at uh, the ideal reader, for example, would be uh, a person who was not religious, who grew up in a religious environment. Um, who had to deal with a loss of faith at some point so as i was writing this i i was uh, watching one of my very close friends lose her faith she had grown up in a fundamentalist christian household um, and she was in you know in a phd program and rapidly losing her faith and and coming into her atheism and i I, you know, we talked a lot about this, and she mentioned things that I would never even have thought of, um, that, you know, she had to contend with mortality, this idea that, you know, she is actually going to die at some point, and everybody she knows is going to die, and that that, you know, they're not going to all live in heaven with Jesus, Uh, and like, this is a real, real thing that she had to contend with and reckon with. And it was, it was really interesting to me. And, and that's the reader that I wanted to reach. Is the is so I, I I would call this faithless fiction. Um, you know, how can how do you live and how do you live more morally and ethically and with joy without turning to religion?
0: Yeah, I, yeah, I would I would agree. I mean, it's not a book about religion, it's a book about losing your religion, really. Yes. um and and how you deal with that and how you cope with that so um and and the religion it doesn't have to be something you know uh, rooted in in hindu mythology or, or organized religion it could be any religion really you'd mm-hmm. still be dealing with some of the issues that Kalki dealt with in the novel so um so just to wrap up with a couple of quick questions then um one of the things i always think is you know because a book is a multi-year project, usually, you know, both in the writing of it and then getting it out into the world. Mm -hmm. There's always something that I think changes for a writer after the writing of a book. It may not be evident right away, but, you know, there is something that happens to all of us through the process of writing a book. And that's probably why we do it, um, even though there's hardly any money (laughs) in it. So if I had to ask you, what was, what was maybe one of the most interesting things that you discovered that you didn't know through the writing of this book?
1: I would say that it, it, this writing this book taught me how to, how to imagine the rest of my writing career. I, you know, before this book, I was really writing some a lot of things really close to my own experience. Um, you know, I, <laughs> it's always terrible when you write a novel and uh, you're reading and, and people are always asking you like, oh, this is based on your own life, right? Um, and, you know, Marriage of a Thousand Lies wasn't, but it, it was very close to my experience. I used a lot of my own experience and I used a lot of the experience of people I loved to write Marriage of a Thousand Lies. And with this book, it was really about me and my imagination. And that was really beautiful. That was a beautiful experience. And I really fell in love with that. Um, And I was able to imagine what kinds of things I might produce in the future, Uh, what kinds of experiences, what kinds of um, you know, stories I might imagine myself into in the future. And uh, it, I think it really freed me up from thinking that I had to mine my own trauma and serve it on a silver platter for a white gaze. Um, this, was, this was, you know, I mean, uh, a lot of things this is about a young boy which I have no experience of being. Um, It's, you know, takes place in India, which where I didn't live, it, you know, he's a child God, which I wasn't. Like there was a lot of, uh, there was nothing really, like except the deep emotional truths that I know. There was not much that was, you know, from my own experience, even even the New York City stuff. Like I've never, I haven't lived in New York. Uh, I've visited many times and I'm very familiar with New York. I've never been in a band like there was uh, just everything was just pure imaginative construct and it was so much fun and I think I've rediscovered my joy as a writer
0: oh that's great I love that I'm glad um because yeah you're right it it shouldn't have to be that we have to keep serving up our experiences disguised as fiction for other people (laughs) right so Mm -hmm. I'm I'm glad because we come to writing because of what it does to our imagination and I think that's great. So, so you mentioned, you know, your, your writing uh, future, and I think I read a recent Facebook post where you mentioned there's two more books coming, a chat book. So maybe, could you, could you tell us a bit more about
1: what's coming after this Yes. Uh, In February, I'm releasing a chapbook. It's a hybrid chapbook of poetry and not like flash nonfiction essays uh, called Dominant Genes. And it is coming out through Black Lawrence Press. Um, I'm really excited about that. In 2023, in the summer, uh, I'm releasing a a graphic novel, a a middle grade fantasy graphic novel called Shakti um, that is that sort of plays with um, uh, Hindu mythology in the form of Durga and Kali and um, sort of tells the story of a young witch, uh, young, you know, Indian American witch who um, tries to defeat her bullies using Durga's magic. Um, so that's that's coming out. And then I have another, another graphic novel, uh, YA coming out called Tall Water. Um, which will come out, you know, probably like 24 or 25. Goodness, graphic novels. I did not know that.
0: That's exciting. <laughs> um, there, I, already I was thinking of, you know, you, you definitely need to meet maybe a couple of writers that I know, but I'll, we'll talk offline about that. Um, okay, so my last question then is mm-hmm. something that I ask everybody who comes on. And usually it's kind of hard to pin down, but you know, let's give it a shot. What is your favorite or most recently read Daisy book and why? Oh, that is hard. Um. (laughs) I know, I know, but you know, that's why I I put in the recently read thing because I know favorite
1: picking one is always tricky. It is tricky, although I will say that probably the most important, maybe not favorite, but most important was Shamseldari's funny boy. It it literally changed my life. It it made me think that I could do it too. And that was that was a huge thing. That was a huge thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think, yeah, I think there are books like that for every writer where it just unlocks something inside of us, right? Mm-hmm. And and you know that okay, I can do this too. And that's such a magical moment, and I hope that he knows that he's. He, he, you know, you're not the first writer to mention that, so I hope he knows the impact and influence he's had on a whole generation of, you know, South Asian writers. So that's a great choice. Thank you very much. For that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, thank you for this, Sindhu. I, I enjoyed the conversation, and I wish you all the very best with blue-skinned gods and let's make sure it's a bestseller because we don't want people i I never want to hear that what you just told me that kind of just gets me going when people (laughs) when a publisher says that you know oh my gosh um and i know they don't say that out loud in those exact words but we know we can we're smart enough to know when that's what they mean and
1: that's well some people actually said it out loud in their rejection letters so i mean maybe it's not going to happen anymore but yeah. In, in 2016 or 15 when i was sending it out it absolutely happened wow yeah i think it has i think it is
0: changing i was just talking to another publishing person the other day and i think slowly things are changing but it's going to take time so but yeah. you know every one book like yours makes all the difference and so i'm, I'm always glad to see a, a new and different book pushing those barriers
1: coming out into the world and thank you for that yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for, for asking questions about craft because, you know, that's that's so rare <laughs> when you're a South Asian writer.
0: You've been listening to episode 53 of Desi Books. News and views about Desi literature from the world over. I'm your host, Jenny Bart. Thank you for tuning in. Today's Theycy Craft Chat segment was with S.J. Sindu, discussing the new novel, Blue Skinned Gods. Episode 54 will be up shortly. Follow on Twitter at Theycy Books, Instagram at Theycy.books, Facebook at Daisy Books FB. Tag the accounts if you have requests or suggestions. Please go to the website if you'd like to sign up for the free weekly newsletter. That's daisybooks.co. And please share this interview on via social media so we can keep raising the tide of Daisy literature. Stay healthy, keep reading, and write well.